Open your Bibles, if you have them, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 23 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 23. I remember just a few years ago being in Belgrade, Serbia on a mission trip. And the way Belgrade is structured, uh, they've come out of communism in recent past and they're striving towards capitalism, and the one thing that they see, most of their citizens see as fundamental toward making money, essentially around the world, is learning the English language. So most of the places that you go, people know English, and you can converse, there's very little even accent, it's very easy to understand them, and they're, they're hungry to learn more of English and converse with English speakers. However, the further you work your way out into the country, the less that becomes true, and the more you engage with typical kind of blue-collar workers and things like that in uh, convenience stores and places that you run into, the less likely they are to know English. And so one day, we as a group of people decided to venture out on our own, and we were going to go get lunch. And we had been told that there was this street vendor that was just incredible, that the food was just amazing. And incidentally, that was true. So we went to this street vendor, and there was a line around the block to get food from this place. And so we were really excited, and we thought, oh, this is going to be awesome. And the closer that we get, we're starting to look at the menu, and we realize that it's all in a Serbian dialect of Croatian. We're not, there's not a chance we're going to be able to read this menu. And so we start talking to people around us, like any English speakers here, that can help us interpret this menu. And so there was a couple of kind people that were like, look, I'm just going to make it really simple for you. You need to get that. That is what you want to order on the menu. And so we were all quite happy to do that. We were excited about it. So we walk our way up to the front. And most all of us in our group, large group, 13 people or so, all of us in our group uh, point to the item on the menu. We don't even know how to pronounce it. This right here, they say, okay, because that's what most everybody was ordering. Except one person in our group. There's always one. That's exactly right. There's always one. Well, he was the one that was convinced that the common myth is true. That in order to get someone to understand the language you're speaking, all you have to do is speak slow and loud. And not only that, but he wasn't content to just point to the item on the menu and just say that. He wanted to make substitutions and cuts and changes to the order. Apparently, he thought we were at Burger King. You remember the old slogan for Burger King? All we ask is that you let us serve it your way. Apparently, he thought he was there at Burger King, and all they wanted to do was serve it their way. So he was saying, hold the onions. The lady on the other side of the counter was like, I have no idea what you're speaking. I can't believe you don't understand that I don't understand what you're saying. See, as it turns out that when it comes to understanding a different language, it isn't a matter of will. It isn't a matter of effort. It isn't a matter of strength and power. It isn't a matter of how loud you speak or how soft you speak or how slow you speak if you don't know the language. You don't know the language, period. In our text this morning, Jesus is speaking the language of the kingdom of heaven. He's teaching people in parables. And some people are rejecting it completely. He comes in and he's preaching and they're rejecting it completely. And you think about it for just a second. He is healing people. He's taking people whose hands are withered and he's giving them back the use of their hands right in front of everyone. And some people reject it. And then other people like John the Baptist are questioning it. They're saying, is this really the Messiah? The crowds are going, can this really be the son of David? Is it possible? He just healed a blind person. And then other people are accepting it. Now with the vast majority of people rejecting it or being ambivalent about it, the question then becomes why are some people accepting it and others aren't? 
Well, Jesus is going to answer that question, and when he does, we're going to see that hearing and understanding Jesus is a matter of having ears to hear. Let's look at our text this morning, Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 23. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came, to him, came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For, the one who, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is hard. This text is very difficult to understand and unpack. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear, understand and apply your word to our hearts. That it may cause us to have joy at your teaching. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Parables are everyone's favorite part of the Gospels. I say that partly tongue-in-cheek because parables can often be very difficult to understand and Jesus can be very difficult to understand at times. And so when he comes in teaching and he gives us parables, they can sometimes feel like more, more like riddles to us where we're trying to interpret and break apart and we spend most of our time trying to figure out what he's saying, to whom he's saying it, and, when, and what are we supposed to do about it? 
And then, because they're difficult to understand and apply, we often end up with differing interpretations and different people have different conclusions and which leads us to sometimes disagreement. Which one of us in this room hasn't, at some point or another, read the Bible and wished Jesus would just say it plainly? Just speak to us plainly. Well, chapter 13 of Matthew contains eight parables. Eight parables of Jesus in chapter 13 of Matthew. And the disciples are going to ask on this most famous of Jesus' parables, of all the ones in this chapter, this is probably the one you're most familiar with or have heard the most number of times. But the disciples are going to ask Jesus why he teaches in parables. Why do you do this? And it's to our benefit that they ask him this question because then Jesus is going to go through the process of explaining the parable of the sower and the seed and he's going to draw a sharp division between two sets of people, the ones that can understand and hear his teaching and the ones that cannot. And I want to make three observations in the text this morning. The first observation is that in order to understand Jesus... You must have ears to hear. In order to understand Jesus, you must have ears to hear. In the previous passage that Jeremy did an excellent job preaching on last week, Jesus was inside the house and he was teaching a bunch of people. And then now he is moving outside of the house. His family was looking for him for a while and he said, these are my, these are the people that are mine, the people that hear and believe and all of these kinds of things. So now he has moved outside of the house and he's going to teach the crowds that are flocking to him. And the the crowds stand on the shore. They're crowding around Jesus and Jesus gets in a boat to begin teaching to them. However, what he begins teaching them is mostly in parables. This seems um, counterintuitive. It does seem counterintuitive. In fact, I think it seems counterintuitive to the disciples, too, who go up to Jesus and ask him why he's teaching the masses in cryptic language like parables. Why would you speak in cryptic language like that? And that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Don't you always tell me when you have relatives come into town? Hey, I have so-and-so coming into town. They have never heard the gospel. Or it's been forever since they've been to a church. What do you tell me you want me to do? Preach the gospel to them. Say it clearly. Just state it for them. This might be the one time that they hear it. And it's for good reason. That's the way we think, right? Nevertheless, he teaches the crowd in parables. So if you're new to the Bible, or maybe you're new to reading the scriptures for yourself, a parable is a practical story that illustrates a spiritual truth. It's a practical story that illustrates a spiritual truth. Now, we're not going to learn the meaning of this parable until later on in the passage. Jesus just kind of gives it to us here at the beginning. For now, he gives us this story of a farmer who goes out as a sower of seed, throwing seed in random places. And he goes from place to place. He's throwing seed. He's not being discriminate about where it goes. Some of the seed lands on the path and it's snatched away by the birds. Some of the seed lands on rocky ground and it, it, it's, uh, there, there's not good enough soil there. It's not a deep soil. And so it doesn't grow roots. And so the sun comes up, chokes out the supply of the plant. It withers and it dies. Then there's a third group and it falls on th- uh, thorny soil. And the thorns, they don't allow it enough room to grow. And so they choke it out. And then the final seed falls along good soil and it grows and reproduces. But do you notice, Jesus doesn't open the parable with a comparison. He doesn't tell them what this is like. He just throws them into the middle of a story. Now, in the rest of the parables in this chapter, in the other seven, you're going to see, he's going to say the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, but not here. He just jumps right into the middle of the story, giving an illustration of, and without giving this the topic that it's part of. 
not telling us what the parable is meant to illustrate. But then he ends verse 9 with a familiar ending. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, what does this mean? Every time you see this, he who has ears, let him hear. This is repeated frequently by Jesus throughout the Bible. And when he says that, he means that there's a deeper meaning that you're supposed to be looking for. There's a deeper connection that you're supposed to be looking for. He says this in chapter 11 when he's talking about John the Baptist. He says, John the Baptist, if you can hear it, is Elijah. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, what he means by that is there's a deeper meaning about Jesus being, I mean, John the Baptist being Elijah. He's not reincarnate Elijah. He's a type. He's the fulfillment of Elijah, the one who is the forerunner to the Messiah. And so if you're picking up on the deeper meaning, if you have ears to hear, then you're understanding that John, like Elijah, is the forerunner to the Messiah that God promised. So that means if you have ears to hear, Jesus is the Messiah. You see how he gets there? He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus uses this again, though most people don't think about this. Jesus uses this again in Revelation. When he's telling John what to say to the churches, he says, he who has every church ends with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because there's lots of apocalyptic language that's used throughout there. As an example, sexual immorality in Revelation often means idolatry and following pagan religions. And so he tells them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The implication is not only that there's a deeper meaning, but to them that perceive the deeper meaning, you're expected to take it in and apply it to your life and conform your life to its truth. The problem is that he hasn't clued us in on what he's talking about just yet. And so the audience that's there to understand this, what are they to take from it? What do you want us to learn from this? Most of the audience is just thinking, cool story, bro. What do you want me to do with that? How, what am I supposed to do? But notice that it seems as though his disciples at least have some sort of understanding. They have some sort of uh, concept about what he's talking about because they come to him asking not for the meaning of the parable, but why he teaches in parables. He's asked, they're asking for the benefit of all the hearers there. Why do you teach all the rest of them in parables? Their question to Jesus is about the other people standing there that aren't going to get it without a straightforward explanation. Why don't you tell it to them plainly? However, to Jesus, only the one who has ears to hear can understand the meaning of what he's saying. Only the one who has ears to hear. We're going to see in a minute that the seed that's being sown is the word. It's the message, the good news of the kingdom of heaven. That Christ has come. That Christ is God's Messiah. That he has come to save you from your sins. That is the good news, the seed that's being cast. And it's clear in what he's saying that to understand Jesus and then to understand the good news that he's proclaiming of the kingdom of heaven, you must have ears to hear. Second observation that I want you to see is that spiritual ears are a gift of God. Spiritual ears are a gift of God. Some have questioned this parable, and you'll often hear the questions asked, well, which one of these soils is a Christian? Which one of them? Are all four of them? Are just one of them? Maybe one and not the other. Maybe all of them. Maybe a combination. Maybe two of them. Which of these soils are real Christians? Some have suggested that they're all Christians. All four of them. They're really, he's talking about people inside the church. And others have said that it's only the one, the last group. And then others have said everything in between. But if you pay attention to what Jesus is actually saying he explains it twice. He explains it first in a little bit cryptic language in 10 to 17, and then he explains it a more, uh, once more again in 18 to 23 much more explicitly. In 10 to 17, he gives the spiritual realities, 
behind someone hearing and receiving the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Which is an answer to their question. Why do you speak to them in parables? He's answering their question. But it's also an explanation of why the parable of the sower and the seed is true. The disciples might be a little bit frustrated here. It's possible that that's in their tone as they ask him this question. Because he's speaking in parables as if he's being confusing on purpose. And so they ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answers them in verse 11. Look down at the text. In verse 11 he says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So there's two groups, essentially, that Jesus identifies here. There's the disciples on the one hand that he's speaking to. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And then there's the other group, the crowds on the other side, to whom it has not been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But then the question becomes, doesn't it, where does this knowledge come from? How do I, I would be asking if I was a disciple, you say it's been given to me to know by whom? Where did this come from? Well, if you'll remember, Jesus actually mentioned this a couple chapters ago. If you'll turn back to chapter 11, verse 25, just flip just a couple pages probably at most back in your Bibles to chapter 11, verse 25, and we'll see Jesus mention it there. 11.25, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the, the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. So it seems that this hiding and revealing of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven is chosen by the Father and He has given authority to the Son, Jesus Christ, who reveals the Father to some and not to others. Now, back to our passage in Chapter 13, look at verse 12. He says, For to the one who has, who has what? For the one who has what? Who has been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. Well, that sounds an awful lot like that last soil in the passage, in the parable, doesn't it? The good soil that produces 30 and 60 and 100 fold. In fact, if you look at verse 19, you'll see that the seed that's being sown or thrown out by the sower in this parable is what? He says it's the word of the kingdom. It's the good news that God's kingdom has come. So the soil that has been given to receive the seed, has been given to receive the word, the good news of the kingdom of God, which in verse 11 and 12 is called the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, or in verse 19 is called the word of the kingdom, this soil will produce. But, look at the second half of verse 12. Again, from the one who has not who has not what? Who has not been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, even what he has will be taken away. Well, that sounds an awful lot like the first three soils that were presented to us in the parable that Jesus gave to us. The word of the kingdom that is sown on the path. This is the, the good news, the gospel message that's being preached is thrown on the path. And what happens? snatched up by the birds, taken away. But then there's the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is here. He's come to give you salvation from your sins. That message is thrown onto the rocky soil. And what happens? It's scorched by the sun and it dies. 
Well, then the word of the kingdom, the gospel, the message of truth, of life, God's Messiah has come to save you from your sins, is thrown to you upon your ears, and the thorny soil hears it, and they initially receive it with joy, and it starts to grow. It shows some promise, but it's ultimately choked out by the thorns. The reason that this is important is because in the parable, many leave thinking, well, when it comes to responding to Jesus and his kingdom, it's not so much black and white. There's a lot of gray. There's a lot of room inside the church for many different kinds of reaction. There are many good and respectable commentators, preachers even, that have suggested that there are apathetic and lazy Christians, much like the thorny or the rocky soil, that are a part of the kingdom of God and are part of His church. And I think it's because of an absolute misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying here. In fact, I think He's decidedly against that. He's coming in and He's saying, no, there are two people, ones who hear and ones who do not. There are two people, those who have the secrets, those who, who has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven and those who do not know and who will not understand, who do not have ears to hear. But then he squarely answers their question in verse 13. Why do you speak to them in parables? He tells them, now, I want you to put your eyes on the text. Look at verse 13. He says, because seeing, they do not see. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. The function of parables is so that the path, the rocky soil, and the thorny soil can see and at the same time not see. Jesus tells them that his ministry is the fulfillment of Isaiah's ministry. This is much like what Isaiah told you and what, much like how Isaiah was commissioned in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah 6 is the one where he is in the temple and he, con he is confronted by God and he, he confesses his sin and he says, I'll go. And God sends him out and he gives him this commission in Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. And Jesus quotes this here about his own ministry to them. And he says this, this is Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. should appear on the screen behind me so you can follow along with me. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. And he said, go and say to this people, this is Isaiah's commission from God, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Now God turns to Isaiah and says to him, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's tough. Perhaps within the disciples' question is an assumption. I don't know this for sure, but I, I sort of imagine that there was an assumption there when they asked this question. Why do you speak to them in parables? Perhaps the assumption was something like this. Jesus, if only you would teach them plainly. If you would just say it to them plainly. If you would just tell them. Well, then we'd all understand. Everyone would understand and everyone would repent. And Jesus is explaining no, it doesn't work like that. What I'm doing is intentional. The good soil that the message is cast on, that hears it, that receives it, the good soil is going to respond to it and they're going to grow. In John, he says, my sheep hear my voice. He's saying all the rest are growing more obstinate in their rejection of God. All of the rest are growing hardened. And this is the reason I teach in parables. 
His teaching is intentional because spiritual ears are a gift of God and Jesus already told us in chapter 11 that he has the authority to grant the spiritual ears and he teaches in parables in part as a way of refusing to grant spiritual ears to the rest lest they might hear and turn and repent. The crowds are certain that they're a part They are certainly a part of this rejection. But in the context, the Pharisees are right in the crosshairs too. The Pharisees are right in the middle of it. Now, this might make us a little bit uncomfortable thinking about what Jesus is saying here. But remember this, that the spiritually blind and the deaf people The people for whom Jesus is unwilling to grant illumination that leads to repentance. These people that he's talking about are willing partners in their own blindness. You have to see that here in the text. They are willing partners in their own blindness. Look at what he says in verse 15. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. So then the question is, wait a minute. Is Jesus blinding them with his parables? Or are they blinding themselves by closing their eyes to the truth? And the answer is, yes. It's both. Now, there's a lot of debate and a lot of argument that likes to be made around this kind of idea. The Bible keeps them in tension. Well, was he responsible for his objection to Christ as the Messiah? Or was it Jesus who was unwilling to give him illumination? The answer is right here in the text. Yes, both. They're in tension. They're clearly in tension. Don't resolve the tension. They're there on purpose. Article 5 of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 puts it this way. The Baptist Faith and Message is a doctrine, is a statement that we all agree to as a church, being Southern Baptist. Baptist Faith and Message 2000 puts it this way. Article 5. Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. All right? But then look at the other side of it. This is also true. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with all the end. It takes takes everything into account. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. God is the one who gives spiritual ears and the crowds are deaf, but they're perfectly content to be so. They would have it no other way. Jesus is preaching of the good news. In fact, the church's proclamation of the gospel is the wisdom of God to those who are being saved. When we preach the gospel to those who are being saved, to the good soil, they hear it and they respond and they grow and they repent And they produce fruit. But to those who are perishing, it is absolute foolishness. They will refuse to believe. Jesus says in John 9, 39, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see And those who see may become blind. For judgment he came into this world. Those who see, who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Through Jesus' parables, the spiritually blind, the good soil, are receiving sight, and the rest are growing progressively more hardened. They're being pressed upon to bear fruit in keeping with repentance like John told them in the river. And they're finding it all the more difficult to do that 
Because the ability to hear and to understand and respond rightly to the preaching is a gift of God. The last observation that I want you to see here is that evidence of spiritual ears is seen in supernatural fruit. Evidence of spiritual ears is seen in supernatural fruit. So then Jesus explains the meaning of the parable. And each of the other soils have what little word that they have been given, what little seed they have been given. All of these soils have it choked out by something, have it taken away by something. Now, they all look a good bit different from one another. They all have a different little bit of nature to them. Some of them, maybe all of them, may look like Christians at one point in time or another. And all of these soil types may be present in this very room right now at this moment. Rejection of Jesus and the kingdom of God comes in various forms, some showing promise, some showing evidence that they themselves are believers, that they're Christians. Some promote themselves to other people like they are Christians. And some show no interest whatsoever. So let's put these in context of people that come to church that are willing participants in worship on a Sunday morning, that are listening to the sermon right now. Let's just put them in context of hearers inside the church. He says the path kind of hearer of the sermon, of the song, of whatever, the path kind of hearer of the word of the kingdom hears what's being preached and doesn't understand it. They walk away from it. Anything that would be beneficial to them to hear, anything that might ring between their ears, Satan blinds his, uh, uh, blinds his unbelieving eyes and snatches the seed away. Just takes it right away, lets him forget about all of it, distracts him with what's happening after church, with football, with food, with family, the three F's, all the things that come after church. Thoughts about what they're going to do after this. No long-term decisions are made with anything that's being said. No changes in lifestyle. No real sin that's being reflected on. Songs and sermon, they're all evaluated on an entertainment factor. Was it good? Was it entertaining? Was it beneficial? Was it, hey, that was, that was awesome? Or did he keep my attention? Was he too long? Probably. Don't laugh. <laughs> but that's about the extent of it. Then there's the rocky soil hearer. He hears the preaching and he or she is pretty enthused about it. Hey, wow, that was remarkably good. Surprisingly short. Quit laughing. That was, <laughs> that was, that was, that was awesome. They may even feel convicted about some things. Maybe some things in there. It's sort of like, oh, I, I, kinda, I think I may need to change some things that I've been doing. But then Monday hits. And then Tuesday and Wednesday, and the boss asks him to compromise on a few things. Or perhaps there's an opportunity to laugh along with vulgarity. Or perhaps the nighttime rolls around and the computer offers to him the same temptations he's been offered time and time again. And the decisions that were made on Sunday vanish by Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Then there's the thorny soil hearer. He hears the, the preaching, may even understand the preaching, may even like how long it is. Stop laughing. May like what's being taught. Is generally pretty excited about it. He loves his church. She loves her church. This man or woman, they don't look obstinate in any way. No one would think that about them. This isn't your typical atheist, mad at God kind of person. No, no, no. That's not who this person is. It could be in church every Sunday, singing in the choir, may even be preaching in the pulpit. But the difference in the thorny soil and the good soil is what? The thorny soil is unfruitful. There is something that prevents the fruit from happening. Why is he unfruitful? Well, his time preoccupies him. 
He's bogged down, weighted down by so many things. I'm just really busy, he says. Reading the word, studying the word, praying, confession and repentance of sin, raising my children in the Lord. The problem is I just don't have time for that. It's too much. These bills don't pay for themselves, you know. When you talk to him about it, he says, yeah, you know, I know I need to be doing more. I know I need to be doing things different. I know I should make time. I just, I just haven't for one reason or another. The deceitfulness of riches chokes the word and renders it unfruitful. The thought that his life is about making money, earning a living, living, providing for his family so that he can have a good retirement, that's what mostly preoccupies his mind. And so all of the things that could be done or the decisions that could be made, all of those take a back seat to the real priorities of life, making it through comfortably. The good soil hearer hears the word. He understands it. He applies it to his life. It's sown deep down. It grabs hold of the marrow of his bones. And slowly over time, it proves fruitful. Well, what is the fruit that should be produced? What is the fruit that he's talking about here? Well, Matthew has told us what fruit should be expected from those that are reacting positively to Jesus' proclamation. And I've said it a thousand times because it led off Jesus' preaching. Matthew tells us in Matthew 4, 17. He tells us everywhere Jesus went, he was preaching this. And so I feel like to lead off Matthew's sermons, I need to talk about it a lot too. Repentance. That's the fruit that he's talking about. There's repentance in his life. He's turning from sin, but not just turning from sin and recognizing it and confessing it. He's actually turning the opposite direction and picking up all new behaviors, behaviors that honor and glorify the Lord. What are those kinds of behaviors? Well, Jesus is going to tell us that disciple making is a part of it, right? The Great Commission happens at the end of this book. That's what he tells you is the mission of the church. Go make disciples evangelizing the lost, baptizing new believers, showing them how they all are to obey Christ and all that he has commanded us. This is fruit too. Obedience and faithfulness to Christ's mission for the church. He's also going to tell us in just a few verses, in 44 to 46, he's going to tell us that there's a deep-seated joy in their heart that causes them to do all of these things. It's the initial cause that produces all of this kind of fruit. So that's got to be there too. That's the fruit producer, the root, if you will. Notice in verse 23, though, that the good soil comes in many varieties too. Much like the bad soil. The good soil comes in a lot of varieties. Comes in hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold varieties. The Costco version and the Walmart version. It doesn't seem that Jesus is concerned all that much with how much fruit is actually produced because he knows, after all, that it's God that causes the growth. So while one pastor may pastor a church and impact millions of people around the world. And another pastor may be pastoring in a small church of 25 people and faithfully preaching the gospel. One couple may have 15 kids and all of them may be God-honoring, Christ-worshipping, blood-bought believers. Say that five times fast. Maybe blood-bought believers bringing others to Christ, serving as missionaries and pastors and, you know, God-honoring accountants and all kinds of other things. And another woman maybe the only Christian in her family. Or maybe single. But maybe faithful to the Lord, sharing with her husband and her children or maybe all those she comes in contact with, discipling those that she comes in contact with, doing everything that she can 
You have no control over the quantity of fruit produced or the kind of field that the Lord has planted you in. You have no control over that. The difference in the one who, whose, whose ears have been opened to the secrets of the kingdom and the one who has not, the one who has heard and believes the word and the one who has not, the difference in the one who applies uh, the things to her life and resists temptation of the enemy and the one who does not is what you see is eventual fruit that's produced in their life. Not a certain quantity of fruit, Fruit. The question is, what kind of hearer are you? What kind of hearer are you? Are you a good soil hearer? I don't mean that you have set the world on fire telling everybody that you know about the gospel. In fact, there's probably a lot of people that you're thinking... I should have shared the gospel with that person. And I didn't. I think that a lot. There's probably people you're thinking about in your own family. You're thinking, man, if only I had an opportunity of a conversation for them. I had plenty of opportunities. I haven't taken it yet, but give me one more shot. I'm not saying you've set the world on fire. I'm saying, are you a good soil here? Or do you see the sin in your own life? Are you repenting of it? Are you confessing that to the Lord? Are you... Picking up all new behaviors as well. This doesn't earn you salvation. This is evidence of salvation. Is that you? What is the fruit that has been produced in your life, that God has produced in your life over the years? Take a moment and reflect on that. Take a moment to see how good God has been in using your testimony in the lives of others. Take a moment to see how good God has been to show you your sin, that you might confess it to Him, that you might no longer live with friction in between you and God. Take a moment to reflect on those kinds of things. Are you uncertain? And the question is, what spiritual, eternal, lasting fruit has God produced in your life over the years? What sin has he brought you to victory over? Do you have more joy in your Savior today than you did 10 years ago? There may be some in this room who for one reason or another, maybe through this sermon or maybe even just here recently through events or various other things, are coming to the realization that you are not a follower of Christ. You're not a disciple of Christ. Then let me tell you, Christ is calling you to believe today that he is the Messiah. That he is God's Savior. Come to save you from your sins. He bore the wrath that you deserve from God on the cross on your behalf. And he offers to you eternal life by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection and subsequent ascension to the right hand of the Father. He offers you the gift of eternal life by profession of faith in him as the only one who can save. The question is, am I speaking a language that you don't understand? If that's the case, I cannot speak loudly enough and I cannot speak slowly enough for you to get it. Do you understand and choose not to hear? The question is, what day is today? Is it a day to reject the gospel? Is it a day to continue in obstinate living? in blatant rejection to clear truth that Jesus is the Messiah, to the clear evidence of his resurrection, is today the day where you continue to reject the gospel and you walk out those doors and you couldn't care less about what's been said today? Is that what day today is? Or is it a day to finally and truly come to the Lord in repentance 
and faith. If so, you can confess that to him right now. You can tell him, I I haven't been a believer this whole time. I've been pretending. I believe. I confess my unbelief. I confess that this life that I've been living is a sin. Give me ears to hear and continue to grow. But you understand, if it's a day to repent and believe, what is tomorrow? Tomorrow is also a day to repent and believe. What is Tuesday? Tuesday is also a day to repent and believe. What is Wednesday? If you don't know the answer by now. It's a day to repent and believe. It's continual. Don't stop. To the believer, pray for your eyes to be open. Pray that God would produce fruit in your life. That the teachings of Scripture, that the teaching of Jesus, that the teaching of Paul, that the teaching of the Bible as a whole would grow clearer to you over time and more precious to you over time. That your heart would be stirred in your affection toward Christ more tomorrow than today and more the next day than that day. Pray for fruit in your life and the life of your ministry, wherever that may be, however old you may be or however young you may be. Because the marker of the one who has ears to hear is fruit that the Spirit produces through you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray that we would have ears to hear. Give us eyes to see the truth of Scripture. May it be precious to us. More desirable are you than gold, than fine gold. I pray that we would know that in our heart to be true and that it would work its way out to our limbs. That everything within us, from the top of our head to the tips of our toes, would be joyous In the fact that we hear and we believe. Pray that you would produce fruit from this church thousandfold, ten thousandfold from members here, from our corporate witness together. May there be no fighting and dissension among us. But may outsiders look at Emmanuel Baptist Church and say, you know how I know those are disciples of Christ by their love for one another. Produce that in us. That the joy that we have for Christ in our hearts will be palpable in this room. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.